Okay, the second Bible reading tonight is taken from the book of Matthew and I'll be reading from chapter 12 starting at verse 22 through to verse 37. Uh, In my Bible it's on page 1020. It's Matthew chapter 12 starting at verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, one more announcement. That is next Sunday after the morning service, there is a church lunch. So come along, bring a plate to share. It'll be a wonderful chance for our church fam to join together in lunch. Um, well, we're going to look at these passages today. I'm not sure what you think about it. A bit crazy. Demon possessions and exorcisms and all that. But uh, take a moment, welcome each other. Grab an outline as well if you don't have one. Um, that will help you through and I'll call you back in a moment. So turn around, welcome each other. I ask you to get back to your seats. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, as we consider the Gospel of Matthew once again and as we are confronted by the Lord Jesus once again, we pray that you help us all to not make up our own ideas of who Jesus is and what he came for, but help us to see him as he really is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now friends, have you heard of the proverb, don't judge a book by its cover? sure we've all heard of that and we know what it means, don't we? When you pick up a book, 
You don't judge the book by its cover, by its colour, by the title. But the thing is, we do that all the time, don't we? We we pick up books and we judge it by the cover. What's the picture? What's the colour? What's the title? Who is it by? We we, we judge movies by its title. You you, you read titles like the, 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 The Princess Diaries, The Notebook, Legally Blonde, The Proposal, Bridal Wars, and you judge it instantly, don't you? They're chick flicks. You stay away from them, and that's right. I mean, that's a good judgment. But of course, we do it more seriously about people, on people. I remember the first day of school, you see that person who wears glasses, and you make a judgment on them. That person wears glasses, he must be good at maths. Or, or you see the other person who, who dresses nicely. This person is that metrosexual guy thing. Or you see that guy at work or that person at work. We prejudge people, don't we? It happens. We shouldn't, but it happens. Now, I still remember when I was a younger man, younger boy in fact, my own prejudice when I first saw Yvonne. This was in youth group. We were 11 years old. She was way taller than I was. She had this funny, strange, awkward hairstyle. And I had this prejudice. This is an interesting girl who came from overseas. Very interesting girl. But everything changed, of course, when I grew taller than her (laughs) and when she grew a normal hairstyle. (laughs) You see, it's a bad thing to judge people before you get to know them. Because when I eventually did grow taller and, you know, wise and all those things, but taller, and and when I eventually came to know Yvonne, well, she somehow became my wife. So... So, of course, the proverb is, is wise, isn't it? Don't judge a book by its cover. Now, judging people by their cover leads to all sorts of consequences and bad things. leads to things like racism, discrimination, bigotry, xenophobia. It's a terrible thing to judge people by their cover. But you see, tonight we'll see it's far worse, far more terrible, far more serious to judge Jesus by his cover, to judge Jesus wrongly. But in our world, it happens all the time. People have all sorts of different views about Jesus. Some sound harmless, like Jesus is just a moral teacher, or Jesus was just a nice guy, or Jesus was just one of the prophets. It sounds harmless, but it is dangerously dangerous. Or some are more controversial. Some call Jesus a liar or a lunatic. But you see, all alike, whatever views they are, if they are wrong, they are deadly dangerous, as we'll see today. And so we're going to look through our passage, have it open, we're going to work our way through all the verses today, and we're going to see what happens. And so what happens in this story? Well, what we're seeing in this story is the kingdom of God coming in the person of Jesus, and it is coming against the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Satan is going head to head against the kingdom of Satan. And so the Bible here, it makes no denial that there is evil in the world. There is evil. And that's, that's one thing Christians can say. There is evil. We recognise that there is evil. In fact, if you are an atheist, you can't actually call evil evil. It's not a concept in your vocabulary if you're an atheist. There's no such thing. But in the Bible, there is evil because there is beings, spirits called demons and the leader Satan. And so there's no denial about the reality of evil and demons and Satan and their influences on this world, on the people of this world. And so here we see an example, verse 22. 
Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And so this man somehow was under demonic attack. He was left blind and mute. Could not see, could not speak. You can't go to a doctor for these things. And so they brought this man to Jesus. And so what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus healed him. Just like that. Without any effort at all, Jesus healed this man so that he could both talk and see. One moment he couldn't see or, see or speak. The next moment he could see and speak. This was unbelievable power. The kingdom of God was coming with Jesus. Coming up against the forces of evil and the demons, the devil, had nothing against Jesus at all. Nothing against Jesus. And of course, how did the crowd respond after this? Well, have a look there. All the people were astonished. And they said, could this be the son of David? And so they're seeing this wonderful exorcism, this miracle, and they're wondering, could this be the long-awaited king, the son of David, who, who, whom God has promised from years ago? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one who would bring about, usher in the kingdom of God and restore the kingdom of God? Could this be the one? And so they're left questioning and guessing and wondering. But then here we also see the Pharisees in this story, in their arrogance, in their stubbornness. They don't think that at all. In fact, they think the total opposite. I mean, it's strange, isn't it? They're seeing the very same miracle. They're seeing the very same exorcism. One group says, isn't this the son of David? And another group, the Pharisees, they're thinking, they're in fact making a huge accusation. They're making a judgment on Jesus. They're looking at Jesus and they're trying to place Jesus in his place. Look at what they say, verse 24. It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now what's that on about when you read that? What is it on about? Well, you see, this is shocking stuff. What they were doing was they were making serious allegations against Jesus. They were accusing Jesus of something totally off. You know, rather than acknowledge like the rest, this could be the son of David who healed many. And they've seen so many healings already. In chapter 8, they saw him heal a leper, the centurion's servant. In chapter 9, they saw him heal the paralytic, the, the sick woman, the dead girl, the blind and the mute. They saw that and here they see an exorcism. And all those things to them should have been signs that the kingdom of God is coming and coming in Jesus. But rather than that, they accuse Jesus here of colluding with Beelzebub, of working with Beelzebub, of scheming with Beelzebub. That's their accusation. It's a serious one. But who's Beelzebub? Who's Beelzebub? Now, the word Beelzebub is, in fact, a play on word on a Philistinian god, uh, god of the, one of the many gods of the Philistines, called Baal. It's a play on word on the god Baal. Now the Hebrews, they mocked this god. They, they considered this god no match to their real god, Yahweh. And so they called this god Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub. That's where the word, the, the phrase Lord of the Flies come from. But later on they mocked this god further and revised it to Lord of the Dung. That's what it means, Beelzebub. Lord of the Dung. The, the Hebrews, they thought, this god's no match for our god. He's really just the Lord of a pile of dung. And so by the time of Jesus, the word Beelzebub came to be associated with Satan, the prince of demons, which is mentioned in our verse. He's the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. This is, this is Satan that, that they're accusing Jesus of colluding with. And so the Pharisees, rather than see that 
this is the son of David, the Messiah. They're saying, you are satanic. You are demonic. So they got it so wrong. But you see, it gets worse in their accusation. You see, by accusing that Jesus drives out Satan, drives out demons by Satan, that actually amounts to accusing Jesus of being a magician or accusing Jesus of sorcery. You see, in the ancient world, exorcisms were practised by appealing to a more powerful spirit to get rid of a weaker, a lesser spirit. And the Jews were in fact renowned for being magicians, renowned for, for practising exorcisms. There, there are Jewish spells that have been found. And so that was what they were accusing Jesus of. They're accusing Jesus, you're, you're manipulating the spiritual realm and you're doing that by the prince of demons. You're invoking Satan to get rid of demons. You're just mucking around with Satan. You're colluding with him. It is by Beelzebub that you drive out demons. So you see that? They're accusing Jesus of working with Satan. But more than that, they're accusing Jesus of being a magician, a sorcerer. Now, why did they make such an accusation? Why call Jesus a sorcerer, a magician? Well, what does the Old Testament say should happen to sorcerers and magicians? Well, in the Old Testament, according to Old Testament law, they were meant to be put to death. It was a capital offence to be a magician, to be a sorcerer. And so do you see the plot of the Pharisees? Now, if you recall from last week, what happened on the Sabbath? Jesus healed the man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, rather than rejoice with the man, what did they do? Straight after the healing, they went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Well, you see, this was their first plot. Their first plot was to accuse Jesus of being a sorcerer, a magician colluding with Beelzebub so that he could be killed, so that he could be uh, done with. And so the Pharisees, they've made their judgment on Jesus. This guy's satanic, this guy works with the devil. But of course they couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus now shows them how they got him so wrong. They misjudged him so terribly. And he says really three things. He says to them they're illogical, they're inconsistent and they're really inexcusable. And so firstly, they're illogical. You see, what they're accusing Jesus of just doesn't make sense, logically. Jesus is saying, if I'm colluding with Satan, if I'm scheming with Satan, if I'm working with Satan to drive out demons, that will be to work against my own kingdom. That will be to work against the kingdom of Satan. And that would not work. The, the kingdom will fall apart. The kingdom will not stand. You see the argument there? It's just illogical if Jesus would work with Satan against Satan. And so have a look at verse 25. That's what Jesus says. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or, city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Damon, uh, Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? You see the argument Jesus is saying? It just doesn't make sense what you guys are saying. Even historically, if you think about the great empires and kingdoms of the world, a lot of them, they were divided and uh, they, they fell. Not, not from wars and battles from outside the kingdom, but from within. One famous example is during the time of Julius Caesar. There's a guy named Marcus Brutus. Now, if you know him, he was one of the ringleaders who, who schemed with his, his cousin, to, or brother-in-law, in fact, to assassinate Julius Caesar. 
And that did happen on 44 BC. And as a result, the battle within the kingdom itself, the Roman Republic subsequently sank into many civil wars and eventually that led to the Roman, the formation of the Roman Empire. You see, when, when you fight against yourself, when there are traitors amongst yourself, that the kingdom just does not stand. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. If I'm really casting out bells, demons by Beelzebub, then, then Jesus is really saying to the Pharisees, you don't have to worry about me at all. This kingdom will not stand. You can just leave me alone. You should be happy, in fact, that I'm doing this because Satan will fall. And so Jesus, this first argument here is saying, you're illogical, it just doesn't make sense. But they're also inconsistent. You see, if they're accusing Jesus of sorcery, what do they then make of those of their own? You see, during the time, the Jewish people were actually known to perform exorcism as well. And so Jesus was saying to them, well, if, I, if you're claiming this about me, what about your own people? And so verse 27, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. And so their accusation is, is just inconsistent, as long as being illogical. And finally, they're really just inexcusable. I mean, they should have recognised that all the miracles, all the healings, this exorcism, are all signs that the King of God has come. The Messiah has come to restore the kingdom of God, to bring people into the kingdom. They should have seen that. These guys aren't your, your fishermen or tax collectors. These are your, like, your Bible college professors, but they did not get it. And so Jesus makes it clear to them. Have a look, verse 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come, has arrived. And this is what you've been waiting centuries for. You've been waiting for God's kingdom to come, to be established here on earth. And, and that's because since, you see, the time of Adam and Eve, right from the beginning, from the point of their defiance and rebellion against God, when they said to God, I'd rather trust in this snake who, who's convincing me to eat this fruit so that I can be like you, when they rebelled against God, the world was given over to decay and corruption and death. Now the reality also was that the world was given over to Satan. The world was in the kingdom of darkness, belonged to the kingdom of darkness. Now we often don't like to think of the spiritual reality of things, but that's the way it is. The Bible does talk about, in Colossians, the world belonging to the kingdom of darkness and Jesus himself talks about Satan being the prince of this world. The world since the time of Adam and Eve has been under the influence of evil. But now they've been waiting for this point and he has come. Jesus comes ushering in the kingdom of God where these things will all be reversed. He comes to destroy Satan and his power. He comes to plunder his kingdom of his people. And so that's what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 29. Or again, how can anyone... Enter a strong man's house. He's talking there about Satan's control, Satan's household, Satan's kingdom. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions, that is the people that belong to Satan, unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. You see, Jesus was showing that by his exorcism. He wasn't doing that as a cool party trick, look what I can do. Satan go and he goes. It wasn't a cool party trick. It was a demonstration that the kingdom of God has arrived. He is the one stronger than Satan who has come to bind up Satan so that he can plunder Satan's kingdom of his people for himself. 
Jesus is releasing people, captives, from Satan's powers. And this example, did this blind and moots man, an example of how Jesus is doing that, showing his power over Satan and releasing the man. And so the Pharisees, they really got Jesus so wrong. They're illogical, inconsistent, and they're really inexcusable. They've misjudged Jesus so terribly. But now Jesus does something fascinating. He actually turns things around now. You see, they've come in judgment of Jesus. They've come giving their verdict of Jesus. They've come saying, this is who you are. You're satanic, you're demonic. Well, Jesus turns it around and now he gives his judgment of them. He places them in their place. He goes on to say, if you're not with me, then you're actually against me. And if you're not with me, then you are the ones colluding with Satan. You're the ones siding with the demonic powers. If you are not with me, you're aligned with the devil. And so verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, of course, the, the Pharisees, I mean, they've just made an accusation. It's, it's a huge accusation, but it's turned on his head now. They, they were probably oblivious to the seriousness of what they were saying and what they were doing. And so here comes Jesus' judgment of them. You see, for them who have seen the work of Jesus, for them who have seen the powers of Jesus, for them to see Jesus' power over evil and demons, for them to see all that and accuse Jesus of being demonic. Well, Jesus says, for you there is no salvation. For you there is no forgiveness of sins. For you there is no heaven. For you there is no God. Verse 31. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, these verses here have have been cause for much anxiety and fear and worry amongst Christians for, for a long time. Have I committed this unforgivable sin Am I eternally doomed? Have I done this already? And so what is this all about? Well, consider what the Pharisees were doing. You see, in their stubbornness, their wickedness, their hardness of heart, they were calling something good, evil. They saw Jesus and all the wonderful things he was doing. He said, the Sabbath, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus is all about love and compassion and mercy. But yet to call all that evil... Calling something good evil, that is blasphemy. They saw with their very own eyes the miracles of exorcism rather than recognise that all those things are signs that the kingdom of God has arrived but to call that, to defiantly, to unashamedly and wickedly say, this Jesus, you've seen do all these wonderful things, this Jesus, he actually works with Satan. He's evil. You see, that's blasphemy. To, to say the spirit of God working in Jesus was the spirit of Satan. That is blasphemy. And so Jesus says here, this is unforgivable. There's no forgiveness for you if this is what you say about the spirit of God working in me. And it should make sense, shouldn't it? If you think about this, it's unforgivable. It just makes sense. You know, if, if you lie, if you boast... If you are proud, if you steal, if you commit adultery, if you kill someone, 
but you turn around, you repent and you come back to me, there's forgiveness. Of course there's forgiveness for all those sins. But if you defiantly call me evil, if you continue to persist in that, in recognising that rather than being good, I am evil, you wickedly call the works of the spirit that is done in me the work of the devil, then you're really rejecting your only hope. You're really rejecting your only source of forgiveness. You're rejecting your only saviour. And so if you continue to reject your only saviour, there's no forgiveness. No forgiveness at all if you continue to reject Jesus as the spirit-empowered king. You see, so people have asked, you know, have I done that? Have I committed this unforgivable sin? Well, the, the answer is, well, do you reject Jesus? If you continue to reject Jesus, if you continue to defiantly, defiantly reject Jesus, well, in a sense, that's, that's blasphemy. That's saying, I don't want to trust in Jesus. He's not good enough for me. He's not worth my worship. And so here, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were excluding themselves from the salvation that Jesus offers. It's actually their fault for excluding themselves. Not seeing that Jesus is the saviour, but seeing Jesus as someone who works with Satan. And so for those people, there's no forgiveness. No forgiveness at all. And now in this verse, these final verses, Jesus places them back in their place. There's, there's nothing that's hidden from Jesus at all. He actually sees through all that they say. In fact, what they say reflects what's in their heart. And so verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. You see, this is what we're seeing in the Pharisees. What they were saying about Jesus, their accusations about Jesus, was reflecting what was really in their heart. Their bad fruit was reflecting that they were a bad tree. But now we think, or before we think, that too bad for the Pharisees. Glad I'm not like that. But listen to what Jesus goes on to say. He says, every one of us, every person likewise will be held account for even the most careless of words. Verse 36, But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. And so here the Pharisees, they try to place Jesus in his place. They've given their verdict, they've given their judgment of Jesus but in fact in doing so in that very same act they've placed themselves in their place. They've placed judgment upon themselves because they've really said I'm against Jesus and I'm really siding with the devil whether they knew that or not. And so they don't stand in judgment over Jesus. Rather, Jesus stands in judgment over them. And you see, that's an important point to remember as we've been thinking. Judging a book by its cover, judging Jesus without any understanding of who he is, that's dangerous. But what's important is that it's not that we stand in judgment over Jesus, but he stands in judgment over us. And that's really the same today. You see, people like to stand in judgment over Jesus. They make all sorts of crazy ideas of who Jesus is. All sorts of crazy ideas. Jesus is just a moral teacher. That's a crazy idea. It's a dangerous idea. Jesus is just a prophet of Islam. That's, 
That's a dangerous idea. Jesus is just a nice guy. That's a dangerous idea. In fact, Richard Dawkins, for a while, he actually claimed that Jesus didn't even exist. That's crazy. That's a dangerous idea. And more recently, some of you may have listened to this TV, TV interview with Stephen Fry from England. Now, he's not talking exactly about Jesus here, but when he was asked about what he would say to God when he comes to the pearly gates, he said this. It's actually quite shocking. It actually made my heart boil. I was actually filled with mixed emotions hearing what he would dare to say. But he said this, Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who created a world that is so full of injustice and pain? Every careless word will have to be given account for. Every careless word. I was concerned for him. I was frightened for him. couldn't imagine what God would do if he was to say that again in front of God. Every careless word will have to be given account for. So he's pretty much calling God the source of all that is good and pure and holy. He's calling God evil. But you see, Stephen Fry and so many of the world, of the people in the world, what we don't realise is that what we think we need to give our judgement of who Jesus is. We need to decide who Jesus is. It's not up to us at all. Jesus stands in judgement over us. And it's like what we see in this story. We don't stand in judgement over Jesus. He stands in judgement over us. You see, it doesn't actually matter what people think about Jesus. It doesn't actually matter all these different ideas of who Jesus is. Because when we read the book, we don't judge the book by its cover. When we read the book, when we read the Bible, when we read the life of Jesus, we see him as he is. And what has he come to do? Well, Jesus has come as the spirit-empowered king, the king who is the son of David, the long-awaited king who will bring in the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom that the world has been waiting for since the time of Adam and Eve. Everyone has been living in the kingdom of darkness, not knowing that, in the kingdom of darkness, but yet Jesus comes to, to, to overthrow the power of Satan, overthrow the kingdom of Satan, defeat his powers, and plunder his kingdom of people for himself. And so how did Jesus do that? Well, that's what we do in Matthew. We'll eventually get to that story, but you know the story. You see, there's no need to prejudge Jesus at all. There's no need to judge a book by its cover when it comes to Jesus. There's no mystery with Jesus because our gospel shows us what he is like and what he has come to do. Because when we read the full story, how did Jesus come to defeat evil? How did Jesus come to reverse decay and death? Well, he did that in the most profound way, most mysterious way, in fact. He did that by his own death on the cross, that at the cross he would bear our sins, our burdens, our punishment. And so when the day of judgment comes and Satan wants to accuse us, accuse you, you remember John when he was 11 and he bagged out Yvonne, or you remember John when he was 21 and he did this bad thing, well, well, there won't be anything to punish me for, but Jesus will say, that's all been paid for. You see, Satan, his, his teeth has been taken away. He has no hold on us, but Jesus, like in this story, what he has come to do, he's come to bind up Satan and plunder his people, and that is done by his death on the cross. And that continues to be done today by Christians. As we proclaim the gospel of Christ, 
And when people do repent and they genuinely repent, they turn to Jesus from all their sins, from all their eyes, they turn to Jesus, what's actually happening is that the kingdom of Satan is being plundered. They're taken away from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so, we don't stand in judgement over Jesus. He stands in judgement over us. And like he says here, are you with him or are you against him? You are with him if you recognise this is the the spirit-empowered king, the Messiah, the son of David. You trust in him, you're with him. But if you're against him, you make all sorts of ideas about him. All sorts of ideas. But you have to see how serious that is. It's actually nothing worse than getting Jesus wrong. To get Jesus wrong is to be against him. And so we need to get Jesus right. Now in this story, we see these people, when they saw the miracle Jesus performed, they wondered, could this be the son of David? They wondered. They they weren't sure. But there's actually no excuse for us today. We know for sure. We know with complete certainty because we've got the whole book. We've got the whole story. Jesus is that son of David who has come to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into his kingdom. I mean, that's what we Christians believe. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to, Jesus invites you to, to come into his kingdom. Let me pray.